Hello everyone, this is Saqib Ali. We are back in business, at least for now, with tennis with an accent. Uh, Wimbledon uh, was over, what, nine days ago? So there's no point really to go back and relive uh, the business end of the championship. But uh, Novak Djokovic's win has definitely inspired me personally. And Andrew Burton's giving me company here that we want to talk about Wimbledon, uh, the broader picture. And uh, just for a few of the friends of the podcast, uh, my father passed away June 28th. So I didn't watch much of Wimbledon, but I did catch some of the second week matches. And I was in no shape or form to do an honest recap because it was it's still a tough time, but I can use this bit as a bit of a distraction and I at least owed an episode in my mind. And uh, Andrew is, you know, as good as company you can get. So he's been ready to do this. And I've uh, pulled him out of his busy schedule. He's been playing a lot of tennis. He's doing the gym. He's active on Twitter. And uh, yeah, and we are always grateful, me and Matt, when Andrew joins us on the show here. Andrew? Uh, hey, hi, it's Saki. It's a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, no, it's great, great to be here. Uh, I know uh, it's a tough time for you and uh, condolences and sympathy from, from all of us. Uh, but we'll try and make this, this next 45 minutes or so as enjoyable as possible, perhaps reflecting um, it, it's nearly 20 years of the, the big three or the big four era, I should say, because we mustn't forget Andy Murray's heroics at Wimbledon and uh, yeah, possibly uh, a good time to, to look back and uh, see how the, the big four era infold, unfolded uh, it's been a substantial part of our tennis lives. Indeed, it's been, right? So you and I definitely have had some talks leading up to this episode. And uh, we kind of came to the conclusion that uh, Novak Djokovic's dominance is the extension of these four men right now. Novak, for the last three editions, clearly was the man to beat. He comes in and wins these tournaments. He's done now four-peat here. And I'm not counting the 2018 version because that's where his second, uh, you know, uh, Novak uh, campaign started and he beat Kevin Anderson in that final. But the last three wins, he was the man to beat and, you know, he, he ended up winning Wimbledon in pretty, you know, convincing uh, manner, at least the last two editions. The Federer one was a dogfight till the end and you've watched all these finals. And uh, and before we get into Djokovic and then we get into the other three men, uh, do you care to explain why you insist on calling it a big four when uh, a lot of people on Twitter would be saying, what is he talking about? There is no big four. Murray is on his last legs. Federer is not coming back. So is big four more pertinent at Wimbledon itself, Andrew? Is that why we are doing this podcast? So I think it's quite fascinating. Just before we started the podcast, uh, I thought that I'd do a quick Google search and I typed in end of the big four era and the end of the big four era has been um, prophesied, you know, as far back the, the, you know, one of them is uh, 2014. You had uh, a writer for the bleacher report confidently predicting in September 2014, that the Big Four era was was about to come to an end, and there have been various other confident predictions uh, in 2015, in 2017, that yeah, the Big Four era was done. 
Um, as you know, there's always been a little bit of an asterisk around the big four with with Murray during uh, you know during his best years, not even in the in the in the last few years where he's he's attempted to make a comeback, you know, really from retirement after having uh, his hip operation. Um, Federer is, is a question mark. Um, I know that he's planning to play Labour Cup. I know that he's planning to to play in Basel. We've had social media reports of, you know, his ongoing, um, you know, build back to try and uh, play again on the tour. I think, you know, I have it as, you know, at best a coin flip that he continues playing after 2022. So, yeah, it's possible that the, the big four will have fairly soon narrowed down to the big two. Um, but if we're looking at the history of the um, of the last 20 years or so, Murray is a huge part of the Wimbledon story, not just because he won two titles, but he was there at the business end for about 10 years or so. And, you know, he's won three finals. He's played multiple um, finals where he's been the losing finalist and the the Masters thousands and matches Davis Cup that he's played streets ahead of any other contemporary player over the period so so for me it's always going to be a big four era now that kind of uh, does fascinate in the uh, you know the uh, viewers oh, sorry listeners imagination and sometimes you know Andy Murray's last title which is six years ago uh, recency bias can come into play but unlike other majors uh, no other man besides uh, Federer Nadal Djokovic and Murray has won Wimbledon there was obviously a Wimbledon that wasn't played due to the pandemic and they had the insurance that year so they didn't have to play behind closed doors but other slams uh, especially with Stan Wawrinka and Marin Cilic and Dominic Team and uh, Daniel Medvedev have, have made their name, are not namely at Wimbledon. So there's something here, which I want to again tie back, because I'm a 90s student, and that time, they, we, there was a world before Rafa Nadal, where clay court uh, champions were called specialists, and don't ask me why, but they were not happy with the Wimbledon grass. We all know the history. And then usually the man who won Wimbledon would also win at least a U.S. Open, like namely Sampras or McEnroe or Edberg or Becker, Lendl being the big exception there. So that time, I don't know, Andrew, if in the part of the world you were growing up, UK or your student years in the U.S., did you ever hear the same thing, the best player usually wins Wimbledon? Again, uh, I'm not saying I am off that notion because Nadal and all the other three members of the Big Four are all court players and homogenization or not, they can win anywhere, but this does tie back to a weird notion that, you know, Wimbledon is just not easy to win, at least. Is that a fair question if you look at uh, at least last 40 years or 30 years since the Becker-Sampras years all the way to Novak Djokovic? Yeah, I think that with Wimbledon, it became an exceptional tournament after the 1970s where starting the, you know, at the start of the Open era, you had three tournaments played on grass, one played on clay. And then you had the introduction of hard courts. 
And by the 1990s, I think Wimbledon was a little bit of an outlier. Um, the the Sampras era, not not I think so much the 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 Becker Edberg Steep Cash era, but certainly by the time you get to Sampras, uh, even Isovich, as as some of the the key players in the 1990s, the the rallies were incredibly short. Uh, I, I remember watching a, an Ivanisevic Agassi match, where I think there were maybe two or three rallies that lasted four shots or longer. Just incredibly uh, quick uh, points, where you know, it was serve volley all the time, and if you got a volley, that typically decided the point. Um, but very often players didn't get the serve back into play. And there's a fascinating chart that's been up on social media recently. Uh, I think uh, the the Twitter user Vestige Du Jour, who does a lot of really interesting statistics, posted this, which showed the, again, speaking about homogenization, the way that the the point length had converged over time over the last two or three decades with Wimbledon and Roland Garros being the outliers to start off with, Wimbledon still having the the shortest average rally length, but longer than it, it had in the, the 1990s, uh, just slightly behind the US Open and the Australian Open, both of which are played on, on hard courts. And then Roland Garros having slightly longer rallies but it had come down from an average of of eight shots to you know maybe about four and a half to five shots now as the the average rally length so you you don't get the tremendous difference between playing Roland Garros then playing Wimbledon that you had in the 1970s and early 80s you can you can still go on YouTube and see uh, a Lendl against Borg final and a Gerolitis against Borg final. And the, the players appear to be shuffling, hitting fairly heavy topspin, but with smaller rackets. And the, 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 the game looks nothing like the game of the 2000s and then the, the 2010s. One other thing that I think is a little bit interesting now, and we can possibly talk about this uh, later on in the in the show, is what I think of as the Big Four era really saw players like not just the the Murrays, the Nadals, Djokovic's, Federer's being consistent on hard courts, grass, and and clay, but also players like Songa, Del Potro. Uh, and Burdick uh, were were all exceptional players on all the surfaces, and I, I'm I'm not convinced that's the case now. I, I think that when you look at Medvedev, Tsitsipas, um, possibly Dominic Team as well, um, you're seeing players who 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 kind of have have clear surface preferences. Yeah, that's very interesting, especially with the the Sangha Burdick. Uh, example because uh, to your point, uh, Dominic team clearly struggles in grass, but I think between Medvedev, Sitsipas, and Zverev, 
this trio hasn't had a Wimbledon quarterfinal yet. Uh, some would say sample size is small, but you would still think, you know, between six, seven tries, you know, these kind of talented guys would at least have one quarterfinal to represent. But again, you know, they have a few more years to correct that. But uh, again, this does tie in the point uh, that Wimbledon does remain, uh, you know, it's an ancient surface. You know, I don't even know, like back then, I'm sure in England, there was some lawn tennis. India was, you know, always having cross court, but, you know, we didn't produce many players after Vijay Amritraj and Ramesh Krishnan that were like top 20 level. But uh, the point is, no one's learning the craft and grass. No one's learning that movement. Even the great Australian culture, uh, it's all hard courts now. So yes. it's, uh, it's kind of uh, an anomaly. The prestige associated with this fortnight is still there. People will argue, like my generation, it is the tournament to win, even though now you can't really pick between the four. They all have their own importance. But uh, Wimbledon does remain. Uh, and that's why I think this conversation is very fascinating, what you wanted to cover with the big four. So let's start with Novak Djokovic. Uh, we don't have to take a deep dive into this year, but just looking at his seven, eight, uh, you know, seven championships and eight finals, uh, what are uh, some of your peak Novak memories? And what are the memories? Uh, where, where did he surprise you? Because now it's probably a big collection to choose from. He's so dominant here, lost only one final. And he's beaten Federer three times. He's beaten Nadal once. So he's played who's who of his era and has a pretty good record. Well, seven titles is an exceptional record. Um, you know, he's up there with, with Pete Sampras. He's one behind uh, Federer, who seemed to you know, be the dominant player of this era at Wimbledon. But um, four titles... The last four four times the uh, the championships have been played, they they took a break in twenty twenty, um, and then you you go back there. There was each of the players um, has had sort of mini hiccups along the way, uh, you know, during the the periods that they they were pretty strong with. With maybe one exception, I'll come back to to him later on. But uh, Novak in in twenty sixteen and twenty seventeen um, didn't make the semifinals or finals. He lost to to Sam Query surprisingly in the round of thirty two in twenty sixteen, and then went out to Thomas Berdick in the the Wimbledon quarterfinal. But then starting in 2011, those are the only two times that uh, he hasn't uh, made the semi-final or better. And he's made the final or better, um, you know, basically with, with those two exceptions and a one defeat to Federer in 2012 since uh, 2011. So you're know, going back... Uh, 11 years now, uh, you can almost pencil in Novak for for a final, certainly a semi-final. Um, and last four years of dominance, I, I think the thing, you asked me how, how he, he surprised me. And to me, I, I go back to the, the 2014 period and there's a 
there's a player's name that will be familiar to you or an ex-player's name will be familiar to you because I think that that part of what you can see as 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 something of a of a renaissance of Novak starts with his reaching out to uh, a former Wimbledon great. Yeah. So and I, and I was very critical of that choice because uh, growing up as a huge Becker fan, I didn't think Becker's coaching material again as a fan and people would laugh at me I mean but that was a fan thing I said how is he going to help Djokovic and of course little did we know that was one of the most successful or you know Novak has a couple of very successful periods in his life and the Becker partnership you know paid huge dividends and he you know attributes a lot to Becker so so looking at the the 2014 and the 2015 final I was looking at the stats uh, those were very closely contested finals and we'll get to the 2019 final against Federer. I know those are, you know, not some finals that, you know, we would like to talk about. But uh, he returned the Federer second serve uh, better than Federer returned the Djokovic second serve. And people would say, yeah, but that's expected. But, you know, those, those matches were close. And in 2014, in fact, I think it's a very underrated final. Do you compare it to, I think I might have asked you this, uh, do you compare that final close to the Rafa Nadal 2008 final in terms of the brilliance that was on display from Djokovic and Federer? If I remember rightly, um, Novak at the time said that that was the best final that he'd ever played. And it was like the Nadal 2008 final. It was, it essentially came down to sudden death. You know, when you get to four all in the, the fifth set, then you're, you're playing sudden death. And Federer had saved match points in the fourth set and, you know, had a chance, had an overhead, I think, at, uh, I'm going to say, 1530 uh, with Novak serving uh, and a rare thing for, for Federer, dumped it in the net. And then Novak held and, and broke to, to take the title. So I'm not, it doesn't go in my memory as, as one of the most brilliant matches that, that I saw Federer, Nadal, Djokovic or, or, or Murray play. Uh, although there's no doubt that it was you know, a match of extremely high quality. And then I think that when you and I were talking to, to set up this podcast, um, we see that the 2015 final, even though it was a competitive match, as one that, you know, that falls into a period that I think of as peak Novak. So I have a, a peak Federer period roughly centered on 2007. I have a, a peak Rafa period. 2008 through through 2009 and my my peak Novak period is the one where he won the Novak slam he beat Federer twice at the uh the that Wimbledon final and then the U.S. Open final and then went on to um to take the Australian Open and Roland Garros the next year to um, to hold all, all four championships at once. And in that Wimbledon final, I think that, that Novak just was clearly a, a, a stronger player on the day. Um, on, the, on the 
the 2019 final, I've, I've had many people uh, say that kind of reversed, at least in terms of form, that on the day Federer looked the better player, but you had three tie breaks where Novak um, played three tie breaks, won each of them and didn't hit an unforced error in, in any of them, just, just basically locked down and uh, said it's going to take you know, you're going to have to beat me on every point uh, mm. that you win to beat me. I'm not going to give you anything. I think we are pretty close in uh, my recollection. I think the way we both think, uh, for me, uh, uh, the two of the best Djokovic sets in a Wimbledon final were sets three and four in the 2015 final because up to the point, they had split two tie breaks. Djokovic was playing good. Federer was playing good. But then Djokovic just, you know, raced away for the next two sets and. uh uh, one of those rare moments when uh, I think, uh, you know, Federer clearly looked the second best in those three and four sets at Wimbledon. And of course, now Djokovic has his seven titles. It is his court as much as Federer's or Sampras. So, you know, we can look at it from a different vantage point. And those three tie breaks you mentioned, I think those are some of the best tennis that Djokovic uh, has played in Wimbledon final. Of course, there's a big Nadal final. And uh, let's also talk about the Kyrgios final. I know that was played eight or nine days ago. Uh, where would you rank Djokovic's performance of what you've seen uh, over the years? How clutch he was in that final? How much did he know when he had to raise his game? Kyrgios pretty much was playing at a very high level. But uh, uh, what, what's your rec- or, you know, recall on that match? And where does it rank in uh, the seven championship matches that Djokovic uh, has won at Wimbledon? So the outcome for me, was not dissimilar to the outcome the previous year against Berrettini. Uh, that I, I went into that final, I think, like quite a lot of people, with a, an amount of trepidation that the curious factor, the, the chaos factor that, the, that Nick can cause... Um, you know, might spill into uh, you know something that that we wouldn't really want to see. And one of the things that I that I could see throughout the match, I thought was was Novak trying hard and and clearly successfully, basically not to allow Nick to make it a chaotic environment that. You know, at one point fairly early on, I think that that Nick served underarm. Um, Novak dealt with it fairly easily. Uh, Nick won the first set, and it was not a, a, a great surprise because Novak had, had lost the, the first set several times during the tournament, which seemed to be part of his his figuring out how the opponent was going to play, and also locating his own game and then tidying up his game and, um, you know, not giving away anything else after that point. And I think, you know, sometime in the, uh, the fourth set, the commentators were saying Novak has given away hardly any unforced errors after the, the first set uh, in terms of, uh, you know, ground stroke errors. He's 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 basically locked down his game. He was serving extremely well. Kyrgios's uh, return game is not his strength. Uh, 
obviously he's a tremendous server and I think that you and I talked a little bit uh, offline about a couple of games where Kyrgios had love 40 in one game, didn't convert, had was 40 love up in one game, didn't convert. And some of his chuntering to his box was around relaxing when he was 40 love up. But to be honest, I, I really wasn't very surprised at the outcome. Um, that I think Novak won something like 56% of the points and, and Nick won uh, 44. So it really wasn't close in terms of the, the point tallies. And that basically tells you that apart from uh, set one, uh, Nick had very few chances to break Novak. And Novak was very, very competitive in Nick's games. Yeah, that's become quite the norm, right? Djokovic does that and uh, I don't know I've read different thing, takes on Twitter someone said he allows them to play into the match I don't think I think he wants to lose the first set uh, by choice because of Wimbledon final but yeah it, they, the the writings uh, on the wall seems always the case like especially when he's not playing you know the other members of the big three even though you know he has got an unbelievable record against both Federer and Nadal over the last 10 years so while Djokovic has been the conversation at Wimbledon for you know almost a decade now, and he's delivered the goods, uh, Nadal has been a curious case since his first win. Right, he reaches five finals in a row. Then uh, he doesn't play. Uh, no, I think in five finals, including 2011. My bad. And then he has some early exit losses to like uh, Lukas Rasol and Steve Darcy, and then Dustin Brown, and even I think uh, Gilles Müller. But then the last three editions. He's made semis, lost in classic to Djokovic in uh, 2018, lost a very competitive match to Federer in 2019. Uh, and then this year, he didn't uh, lace up in the semi because he had the abdominal tear against uh, after beating Taylor Fritz. So what do you make of his Wimbledon you know, report card, which is pretty impressive? You know, He's made more finals than Stefan Edberg. <laughs> so all the notions that used to go around the Rafa that he's a one-surface special has been long thrown out of the window. But how do you access, uh, you know, assess his Wimbledon, you know, report card, like I said, going back yeah, to 2006 it, it, all it, the it, way? It's, it's, it's definitely a... Um, yeah, it, it divides into three or four parts, doesn't it? Because I think it was quite surprising to people that he became as competitive as he did um, in the second half of the 2000s that um, I was getting involved in, in tennis blogs and commentary uh, in the mid-2000s. And there was absolute fury directed towards Cliff Drysdale in 2006 when Drysdale was asked if Nadal had any chance against Federer, and he said no. You know, just just outright dismissed the idea that Nadal would be able to uh, beat Federer in the 2006 final. Now, Federer himself said later on that in the first final that he played against Nadal, he thought, and you know, obviously by this stage it was a rivalry. Federer had lost the 2006 Roland Garros final and the 2006 Rome final to Nadal, 
and and I believe in 2006 he he also lost the Monte Carlo final. Um, and you know, the, 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 there's there's often been uh, some sort of hints of arrogance or dismissiveness about Federer towards Nadal, particularly in the the early stages of their career and their rivalry. But that in 2006, he said Nadal could hit the ball quite hard, but but hadn't really figured out how to play on grass. That was completely gone by 2007. Arguably, Federer was lucky to to beat Nadal in in 2007. Nadal had a twinge in his knee in the fourth set. Um, and then in the fifth set, he was up. Uh, 15:40 with two break chances a couple of times on Federer's serve before Federer managed to break and and close it out uh, 6-2 in the fifth in 2007. Uh, what happened in 2008? Let's see. Uh, I think I've repressed that memory of the 2008 final. It was uh, oh, it's coming back to me. Yes, it was quite a good one. And then uh, you know he uh, beat. Uh, Burdick uh, quite easily in 2010 after Burdick uh, went through Federer and Djokovic to get to the final. Uh, didn't become only the, the second player after uh, Nalbandian to, uh, to beat the, the big three one after the other. And um, then he played a final against Novak in 2011 in what was to date Novak's strongest year. That was the year that uh, I think he, he won 43 straight and was stopped by Federer in the, the Roland Garros uh, semi-final in, in what was uh, an extraordinarily good match. And then went on to beat Nadal in the uh Wimbledon and, and US Open finals that year again two two tremendous matches the US Open final that year was was really just astonishing quality so yeah you have this first period for Nadal in um you know a period of six tournaments one of which he didn't enter the 2009 tournament um then if you had told me in 2017 that Nadal would become a major competitive figure at Wimbledon. Again, I would have looked at you as if you had two heads. But I remember as we were discussing the the preview of the tournament this year, we had, it was you, me, and uh, Murata Tonga, our colleague. And, uh, you know, with Rafa, let's not forget, um, having completed the first two parts of a calendar slam uh, at the Australian Open and Roland Garros this year, Mert picked Nadal to, uh, to lift the, the gentleman's trophy, and I went with Novak. So you know, we both had Nadal as a, a, a very strong contender this year, and you know, it's, it's, it's a tribute to his astonishing competitive quality and uh you know a tribute to the way that he he worked on his uh his all court game you know to to become you know a tremendous competitor on every surface 
but not just a competitor on every surface. You know, the mm. guy is 36 years old. And again, if you'd have gone back to 2003, 2004 and said a 36 year old is going to be competitive at Wimbledon uh, in the 2020s, would you have picked uh, Rafael Nadal? So, you know, it's so funny. I think we've had this conversation elsewhere, maybe not in a podcast. What you just said in 2005, I went to Montreal uh, to see my first ever, I think, tennis masters tournament. And I got a pretty good final. Uh, definitely, you know, Safin, Federer and Hewitt were gone before even the tournament started. I think there were withdrawals and someone, Andy Roddick lost the night I was going there, but I still got a Hewitt, sorry, Agassi Nadal final. And then uh, next year, Nadal beats Agassi at Wimbledon, I believe. And then uh, Agassi says something. Did they play at Wimbledon in 2006, if I'm not mistaken? It was, was it US Open say, that, they, that they played? I'm trying to remember. Uh, no, I think it was Wimbledon. Or maybe, yeah. uh, maybe I'm confusing the two, but he, they did play a Montreal final. And I guess he did say in one of the interviews that the kid's writing checks that his body won't be able to cash later on. But 17 years later, I mean, you, mm-hmm. I, many people, you know, you know, had other uh, reservations. I mean, Yeah, that was before the, um, the World Tour finals, I think that he said that Nadal was, was, was writing checks that his body wouldn't be able to cash. Okay. So I remember the quote, but I didn't remember the event. But yeah, I think the point still stands that, you know, there were doubts about his, you know, his longevity and then how he kept, keeps coming back, his perseverance. And uh, so let me, okay, Andrew, this is, I know, okay, let's, let me ask you a fan, like a bar stool question on a podcast. I know you don't like these things, but, you know, now I, I have the liberty to, you know, just ask you this. Nadal has two Wimbledon titles. Andy Murray has two titles. A lot of fans would say, you know, who's better? Again, the clear answer is for some, Nadal played five finals, Murray played three finals, but they both have had this longevity at Wimbledon. How do you, how do you compare the two careers on the grass? So, you know, let's, let's review Murray's career. Um, and he was uh, a Brit. Uh, they have retired the Andy Murray-ometer, which used to be a, uh, an, an online joke about what percentage Murray was, was British or Scottish, because the joke was that uh, when he won, he was British, and when he lost or went out early on, he was Scottish. But uh, he was, he was a, a clear um, fan favourite from early on. In 2006, he beat uh, Andy Roddick, in the the round of 32 before losing to Marcos Bagdatis. Uh, that that is a a blast from the past. Marcos Bagdatis, who uh, was a, a coming player in 2006, and then starting in 2008 through 2017, Murray has a decade where he never falls below the um, the quarterfinal, and he he lost three times in the quarterfinal, once to Nadal, uh, once to Dimitrov, and once to, to Sam Querrey in 2017. And he makes uh, three finals, winning two of them. The the one loss was to to Federer in, in 2012, uh, where he famously cried afterwards. 
and then he has uh, some semi-final losses to Nadal and Federer. So for a decade, Murray had a you know a record of of being one of the the, the strongest grass court players out there, and his. It, 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 you couldn't call it dominance. You can't call winning two finals dominance. Not in a in a in an era where you're looking across the the channel to to Paris and seeing uh, Nadal's obvious dominance at, uh, at at Roland Garros. But Murray was an absolutely competitive player. Really, I think at what was the peak of the the Big Four era that the decade, twenty eighteen, sorry two thousand and eight through two thousand and seventeen, certainly to two thousand and sixteen. That that for me is 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 peak Big Four era. And I was actually taking a look and counting the number. So I think about uh, the the tours very often in terms of the stability of the tours. How often you get um players making the the semifinals or better and starting in 2006 and then ending in 2019 you only have one year 2017 where only one of the big four makes it to the semifinals or better so in 2017, that was the year that Federer beat Cilic in the final. Nadal went out to Gilles Muller in a round of 16 match that finished 15-13 in the final set. Uh, Djokovic lost to Beredic in the quarterfinal, and Murray lost to Query in the quarterfinal. But in each of the, uh, the years, so there's 14 years where... 13 out of the 14 Wimbledon tournaments, you had two or more of the two or three of the big four making it to the semifinals. You never actually had an all big four semifinal at Wimbledon. You, you had that at the Australian Open and I think at the, at US, the US Open, but uh, never at Wimbledon. It was always uh, three out of the four was the maximum, but you had one, two, three, four, five, six seven years in which you had three out of the big four make it through to the, the semifinals. So that's one of the, the reasons why I think uh, calling it a big four era is, uh, is a reasonable thing. And when you look at any of these careers, especially Murray and Nadal, and just say, man, they had one more Wimbledon in them, or just like you don't attach asterisks to losses, you don't give titles when they, they were not actually won. <laughs> No, I mean, I think that Murray is um, a first ballot Hall of Fame. Neither you nor I grew up with the Hall of Fame, so it's a slightly odd thing when people talk to me about the Hall of Fame, but Murray is an obvious Hall of Fame uh, first ballot entrant. And he... He could quite easily, had he 
made it past the semi-finals. He was a he was a losing semi-finalist four times. He was a losing finalist once. Um, but you know, Andy Roddick uh, is you know hearing his ears burn a little bit and thinking um, you know m- maybe if uh, a, a Swiss chap had taken up skiing in or, or soccer instead of playing uh, tennis, I might have won a few Wimbledon's. So yes, you 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 never want want to uh, pass a player. Uh, a, a title that he didn't win. Sure. So let's uh, wrap the big four conversation up by bringing in Federer. You know, 12 finals starting from 2003, uh, eight titles, uh, uh, you know, uh, another good record. Like I said, Djokovic is pretty good. So is Federer. So uh, what, what are your memories of some of those finals? And uh, were there moments like the 2010, 2011 quarterfinal losses that are anomalies or you think, in a career that long, you know, you will, you're bound to have some moments like this, especially the Songa match. I don't know, I'm throwing in a lot there, but how do you revisit the Federer years? So um, one thing that I remember uh, with, with pleasure, but a little bit of chagrin is a conversation that I had via email with Courtney Nguyen, which I, I think is still up on the Sports Illustrated website which was a fan's view about players. So she, she talked to various people about some of the, the top players at the time. And she talked to me about Federer. And in 2014, in early 2014, she asked me, you know, he's shifted to a bigger racket. He's got a new coach and Stefan Edberg. Uh, is this going to make a big difference? And, you know, I somewhat ruefully at the time in early 2014 said, mm, you know, I don't think so. This is this is what decline looks like. Um, this is, uh, you know, he's he's likely a, um, you know, below a 50 percent chance to be any of the other members of the big four at the moment. I don't know if Ed Berg will do that much uh, for him and, you know, a bigger racket. Okay. But he's got these back issues and, you know, he's, he's moving now well into his thirties. So, you know, it kind of like the message was, it's been great, but uh, all good things come to an end. There's the, you know, father time is undefeated. And so if you'd have told me in, in 2014, that that Federer would have several more Wimbledon finals in him, I'd have said, hmm, okay, that's that's pretty good. But you know, obviously he he played other finals as well. And the everyone I think remembers about Federer the the early period where he he put it all together. Um, you know, starting 2003, 2004, arguably the 2004 year, he, he really put everything together, was clearly the dominant player in men's tennis up to, to 2008 when he, uh, he got uh, mononucleosis, had, had a hard time coming back from that. 
and to a certain extent the the spell was broken after that um but then obviously clearly competitive at wimbledon uh from 2014 through 2019 a couple of um unfortunate defeats one to anderson in 2018 in the quarterfinal where he had a match point in the uh in the third set on anderson's serve and anderson put an unreturned serve in federer lost that uh quarterfinal 16 14 to to kevin anderson who then played an even longer match against isner and had very little left in the tank when he actually made the final uh against Raonic uh in 2016 no asterisks but you know, Federer was was trying to uh get past uh, a Sawney uh and then even in 2021 uh Federer made the quarterfinal against Hurkacz um and as we now know again had had knee issues and was you know had to eat a bagel in his final set we we don't know if that'll be the final set that, that Federer plays at at Wimbledon, uh, but you know, made the quarterfinals look very good against Cam Norrie uh, in that tournament uh, in the the round of thirty two, the third round match that he played, and we'll see if Federer does uh, actually make it back uh, to to play some kind of a tour schedule in 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 twenty twenty three. Um, so apart from the the 2013 hiccup, which was his uh, round of 64 loss to uh, Stokowski, who, by the way, is serving on the Ukrainian front lines now, and we wish him and uh, Alexander Dolgopolov, uh, you know, all the best as they uh, play some or play is the wrong word as they they have more important fights than any tennis match you know Federer's record since uh 2003 uh is is pretty solid throughout in 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 his Wimbledons uh the dominant player for six or seven years and then a very very competitive player uh after 2010 uh I always thought in the the period 2014 2015 where people were saying does he have one more major in him and he lost the uh, Wimbledon finals and then uh, a US Open final to to Novak and people were saying no I, I don't think so well maybe one that if you if, if you'd have told me uh, in 2014 that he had uh, three more major titles in him I'd have been really quite surprised but here we are you were not alone. Uh, that was quite the addition. Account was frozen, and then he ended up at twenty, which is a very good number. Uh, even though we live in an era where twenty-two is still, you know, active, and it could be more. <laughs> it's still the one to beat, and uh, our our esteemed colleague Matt Zemek, uh, I think, has said that that Novak can get to thirty, and. Uh, yeah, my, the the jury is out on that one, but uh, who knows? The Big Four era, which uh, which we've been talking about, has I, I don't know. I mean, I, let me let me turn this question over to you. Uh, do you think it's been an era of stasis for for men's tennis? So, 
if we're having this conversation 20 or 30 years on, do you think people are looking back on the Big Four era as a, if you like, a, a reflection on the rest of the tour or as as many people have put it, more like a kind of a golden age and and maybe also apply that to Wimbledon is the, is the last 20 years of, of Big Four dominance uh, Wimbledon is that a golden age or is it a, a sign that there's there's some been something wrong with the tour? Uh, can it be a combination of both? Because I found myself on both sides of the discussion when talking offline with uh, real life friends, not like Twitter friends or virtual friends. Uh, it's a fascinating uh, uh, question, to be honest, Andrew. And I think you sum it up pretty well with your charts and the statistics you've made. And um, I, I honestly don't know what the answer is. I mean, these three guys are exceptional because uh, you don't win 63 majors and this count can go up to like 65, 66, at least, you know, before, you know, someone has a regular say in it. But at the same time, uh, I always talk to Matt, uh, Mert, uh, the mid 80s to the rise of Sampras. They were like, I think, 40 odd Grand Slam and there were like six or seven men who had more than four Grand Slams, like Jim Courier, Boris Becker, Ivan Lindel, and John McEnroe was not winning, but he was active. Mats Villander, you know, so Edberg, and then Agassi had won three or four. You know, so uh, we've we've been through an era, but this kind of dominance is just ridiculous, and that's that's a that's a that's a lofty, lofty, you know, uh, accolade that I'm throwing. But at the same time, the other half of the conversation is, as you call the lost gen, and they all benefited from this. Like when when Djokovic uh, had his uh, loss of motivation after the Novak slam when he went through his, you know, uh, low moment in the ranking and then he resurfaced. Federer and Nadal benefited. They took four slams in 2017. So that was a time of, I don't know if Generation Nick was ready, but uh, Nishikori and these guys didn't have much of a say. And similarly right now, Novak and Rafa have won 15 of the last 17 majors. And they're like, they're like kings, don't get me wrong, but, uh, you know, and... Uh, what is uh, Zverev and Medvedev and these guys uh, doing to show for the resume? I mean, they're all trying. They're all extremely hardworking uh, players. Uh, a lot of people believe if Federer was not uh, injured during the pandemic years, he would be having a say too. He would be making a semifinal. Who's not to believe that uh, uh, Federer in 2021 made the quarterfinals with a limited, uh, you know, mobility or whatever his knee issue was with, with so many, so few matches? So I think uh, this question is up for grabs. I mean, you can't take the greatness of the big three away, but at the same time, uh, okay, so let's bring in Daniel Medvedev. You and I discussed about him, right? A lot of people believe he's the best of this lot. But uh, if we compare peak Medvedev and his weapons, how he wins matches, how he can uh, figure out his way, is he uh, any better player than, say, Marat Safin or Andy Roddick or Leighton Hewitt? It's, uh, I know this is like a pointless conversation because there's no way to measure this because you're comparing a uh, current player with guys who were top four of the ranking 17, 18 years ago. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's a tough question. And the, the other uh, point I would like to make is that, of course, you know, Djokovic uh, and Nadal, they know how to win these big matches. So not only they hold their own in the bargain, uh, for them, this is like unraveling of plan A, plan B. They have so much more depth up their arsenal that a Baratini or a Kyrgios, anyone with some sort of a limited game, 
is not going to beat these guys. That's the question I asked you and Mert. Like, as good as Berrettini is, is his game at the order where he can beat a Nadal or a Djokovic in a best-of-five fight? And Nick Kyrgios, to me, did slightly better than uh, Matteo Berrettini because he forced you know, a tie-break in the fourth. But the writing was on the wall that Novak is just too good. And now that's the same thing, you know. Did Chilich have it in him to beat Federer? I mean, so all these three men have shown time and again that they're above the competition. But then the other part of your question is, uh, you know, uh, golden age or was also, you know, I don't know what it is. I don't want to belittle any players, but there's always this debate that, you know, all these guys shouldn't be winning, you know, 63 between them. They all could have easily had maybe three each less, but who who's going to raise their hand and is there even an evidence that someone said, oh man, that sh- you know, Dominic team should have won the tournament or Marin Cilic should have won the tournament or Daniel Medvedev because in the end it was uh, Ra- uh, Rafa, Novak and Fed who won 63. So I'm not sure if I'm giving you an answer because you don't want to be a little greatness but at the same time they're definitely uh, like uh, in, in your charts that you have captured uh, for over the generations. Uh, the ranking points are not being accumulated as much by the competition. And that's why I stand where Rinka and Andy Murray stand out more than anyone else besides these three men. Yes, and and, and the, the one other thing that I would, would would throw into the mix is the sheer quality of the matches. Not all of them, but, but some of the matches uh, when players from from this era played each other. Uh, not just at Wimbledon, but in the other Grand Slam tournaments. The the four players from this era have, have left us with some some absolutely indelible memories when they 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 played against each other. And uh, I uh, have enjoyed watching tennis since the. Uh, early 1970s, basically, but for 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 the sheer quality of tennis played uh, during this this era, some of the matches will will live forever. I think. Yeah, I think that's a good way to wrap this up. And you know, there there can be a sequence to this podcast. We can talk about the finalist uh, from Mark Philippoussis all the way to Nicholas Kyrgios from the Federer years to the Djokovic current dominance uh, that, you know, who reaches the Wimbledon final, maybe we'll save it for the off season, but you're right. I mean, uh, let's put it this way, right? That's the biggest compliment I could come off in right now that, I mean, that you can't say enough about these guys. Novak and Rafa squared off in the Roland Garros quarters. And a lot of people believe that was a final. And this is no knock on other players in the tournament, like Zverev or Kasper Ruud. But a lot of people believe that was it. Whoever wins this match wins the tournament. And their combined age at the tournament was, what, 71? And that's ridiculous. <laughs> and, yes. And, and, and to make matters worse for the field, this comment may hold off a year from now again at the same Roland Garros. If Nadal's healthy and Djokovic has his form, the title probably goes through them again. And uh, that again, yep. you can ask me the same question. Once again, you know, is it the golden age or is it the dark age? <laughs> and it probably, I think there's a serious overlap and not to belittle either one. I think there is a gap uh, of uh, certain players winning best of five matches against these few guys. And these guys keep getting better. And that's just the plain and simple truth. The greatest three players to ever hold a tennis racket. 
Yep. So um, let's see what uh, the U.S. Open brings. Um, it Federer will will not play. I don't know if uh, Djokovic will be allowed to play. Uh, whether the United States will relax its vaccination requirements, we're we're, we're still waiting on that. Uh, Nadal hopes to be fit after his disappointing withdrawal uh, against Kyrgios. Uh, so we'll see. That that could be a tournament in which uh, it, it's wide open again. Uh, and then we, we wait to see whether 2023 is the sunset of the Big Four era or whether we're having this conversation again in 2027 sometime. Yeah. Uh, we'll be very keen, you know, to resume this conversation and uh, let's see if Carlos Alcaraz can, you know, can cause this conversation to go in a different direction. But till then, it's uh, the Big Four show at Wimbledon and definitely the Rafa and Novak show elsewhere. And he's Andrew Burton. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this conversation and apologies for uh, sporadically dropping episodes. Uh, twice a month has been the average, but we promise to do better after the US Open. Uh, thank you for listening and we'll be back with more shows in the future. Bye for now.